Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. It's no secret that in the last few years, Americans and much of the rest of the world have been gripped by Hamilton mania. Lin-Manuel Miranda's wildly successful musical has introduced and reintroduced Alexander Hamilton to a whole new generation. Now, you may know the Alexander Hamilton who served as Washington's aide-de-camp during the Revolutionary War, the Hamilton who served as the first Secretary of Treasury, and yes, the Hamilton who met his mortal end at the hands of Aaron Burr. But how many of you know Alexander Hamilton, attorney at law? Well, today you're going to meet a man who was as ferocious in the courtroom as he was battling Jefferson on the National Bank. And as Dr. Kate Brown of Western Kentucky University tells us, you can't separate the one Hamilton from the other. Dr. Brown was in town to lecture as part of Mount Vernon's Teachers Institute, and she stopped by after class to introduce us to this Hamilton, the lawyer. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the Institute, we'll have a link on our webpage for this podcast. As Kate argues in her book, Alexander Hamilton and the Development of American Law, Hamilton's practice before the bar in the 1780s shaped how he thought about federal power in the 1790s. His time representing American loyalists and other clients in New York state courts informed his thinking about the law, the Constitution, and the Young Republic's place in the world. And as you'll hear in this second episode in our four-part exploration of early American law, Hamilton was as concerned with individual rights as he was with creating a more powerful federal government. Now, be sure to check out part one of this miniseries featuring Professor Nicola Phillips on Thomas Erskine and Transatlantic Law, and be sure to tune in next week for part three when we talk to Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky about George Washington's Constitution. Um, you know, then we'll go from there. Okay. It should be fun. It sounds fun. It is fun. All right. Well, I'll tell you if it was or not in 40 minutes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's actually a great way to open it. You know, we'll just leave that part in. So. Okay, yeah. sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, hello, Dr. Brown. Hey, Jim. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, I love to be at Mount Vernon, and anytime I get to come back, it makes me very happy. So So you, you were a fellow here um, a few years ago. But 2015. Then, 2015. Mm-hmm. And so then you have been invited back pretty regularly, right, to do a teacher's workshop. Yes, the Teacher Institute, and I occasionally come when um, the Virginia Continuing Legal Education mm-hmm. days are spent here in Mount Vernon. I've been invited to that as well. Okay. To talk to lawyers about Hamilton and the law. Ah, which is a subject of our our conversation today. But but first, let's talk about your experience this morning, because you know, okay. yeah. an hour ago, I just got to see you lecture. Yes. Um, which is always delightful. And you. Um, you were talking about Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian economic policy. Right, which really was an hour of breaking down Hamilton's economic policy, mm-hmm. funding and assumption, the bank, that kind of stuff. Um, and I like to end with the bank episode because, as a legal historian, it's a nice setup to talk about how to interpret the Constitution, how to see Jefferson's perspective, Hamilton's perspective, and then after Washington decides uh, that the bank is constitutional, you can sort of go further in the future and think about McCulloch versus Maryland, which is mm-hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court deciding the question of the bank. Now, that's where I sort of ended this morning, but if I had more time, the slide I didn't get to, which oh. is the next slide, right, in the, in the presentation, actually uh, goes more in depth about Hamilton's legal arguments that aren't just uh, around the necessary and proper clause. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that f- figure into the McCulloch versus Maryland case. And when I have more time, if I need to fill some time, I jump into that because that is in my book, and I think it has a sort of interesting take on Hamilton. Um, but the, the teachers this morning had great questions, and I... They did have great questions, yeah. I am... Um, in general, I talk a lot, and so then I fill up my own time, yeah. and then I run out of time. So well, they, no, they and I they had some really tough questions I too. Know, sometimes you know I need um, our friend Scott Miller sometimes to mm-hmm. be in the room to answer some of the more economics and businessy questions because I I'm just like well geez you know I don't know what that tax rate was yeah. for Madison's protective tariff I don't remember. Um, yeah, could you please calculate the inflation rate exactly. from 1790 Ex- to the present Ex- right now? Exactly yeah. right. That question, I was like, oh, geez. So, yes, uh, Scott, where are your graphs? <laughs> right, all of his charts. <laughs> but I'm glad that the teachers are thinking about it yeah. and asking it, and they're not just like, you know, on their phones or something mm-hmm. because I'm boring. Right, you know, exactly. At least, at no. least they're engaged. No, they were very engaged. And, and um, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you to talk about just very briefly, yeah. um, you know, because we, we have these teacher institutes here. These are are uh, teachers who win fellowships to come to Mount Vernon, and they, you know, they are experience a week of lectures by professionals such as yourself, and um, Lindsay Travinsky was here this morning, and uh, Lori Glover is here. So, Both of them are so fabulous. Well, it's kind of like a murderer's row today. That's with, true. With, right, you know, right. It's like the 27 Yankees <laughs> um, are in the house. And you did this really neat exercise where you explained speculation hmm. in, in U.S. debt in that period. And mm-hmm. so just walk us very briefly about that exercise because I thought I'm going to steal that from my classes. Oh, well, thank you. And I I think I stole that from someone too. I, I you know, because it's not stealing when it's best practices in teaching, yeah. right? But I can't remember how I came up with it. I'm sure I borrowed the idea. But basically the what I'm trying to demonstrate to the teachers is why in 1790 why James Madison would mm-hmm. suggest that it's not fair that the current holders of debts benefit from Hamilton's plan and the original holders of the debt, the, the soldiers and the widows and the farmers, why, why they shouldn't get a cut. But in order to sort of make that case, I need to demonstrate how the value of the debt changed over time. So I use this certificate that I made up on Microsoft Word that just says, here's a security that's worth $100 face value and some interest. And then I walk the teachers through this exercise of, here, you're the soldier, you get this debt. Well, what happens when when Congress can't pay you back? Um, You decide, I need to sell the debt, but the person who's buying the debt from you won't pay face value Mm -hmm. because it's sort of riskier now that Congress is on shakier economic footing. And this happens over and over and over and over again until finally you get to the late 1780s and the debt is worthless because Congress is basically bankrupt. Right. But there is a class of people who will buy it because on the off chance that uh, the the government pays them back, they'll make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And then these speculators buy up all this debt. And lo and behold, Hamilton is sort of their savior because he's willing to pay back the debt with these new federal taxes at face value, and they make this windfall. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that idea of the changing value of the security over time, that is abstract. And if you aren't used to that vocabulary, I think it's hard to follow along right. with the story. And so I use this this debt and certificate that I'm holding in my two hands, and I pass it along with the teachers to make it more concrete. Mm-hmm. And in and, and the few times I have used this as a teaching tool, 
it seems to engage the teachers. Yeah. So I make the, the certificate available, not that there's anything proprietary <laughs> about it, but I make it available on the shared drive for the teachers so yeah. they can use it in their classes if they want to as yeah. well. And it's just a visual way of seeing this very abstract kind of thing. Well, and, and it's always a hard thing to get your mind around, too. It's like, what does the assumption of the state debt mean? And who's, right. got, who's holding the debt in the revolutionary period? And, you know, who, who, you know, to whom is it owned and all this kind of stuff? And then, right. It's so um, complicated. It's complicated. And, you know, that in some ways, you know, it would also be a good way to help explain probably our modern economic issues with, you know, collateralized debt obligations and all those kinds of fun things that nearly destroyed the, the right. economy. Right, and Ten I, years am, ago. I am glad that Mount Vernon does not ask me to do that lecture, right? <laughs> so keep me in the 1790s, yeah. please. You could just uh. show the big short, you know, that Adam McKay film. Oh, and then, right, which yeah. I have not seen. Yeah. Yeah, I should see it, though, as opposed to read the book, which I also have not done. Well, just just do both. Just and then, do both? Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, what, but it's interesting, right, because you're talking about Hamiltonian economic policy, and that's yeah. how we sort of remember Hamilton, you know, the musical notwithstanding, of course, John Adams calls him the bastard brat of a Scotch peddler. We know yeah. he, you know, he's born in the West Indies in 1755 or 1757. He serves in the war. He becomes Secretary of the Treasury. And then Aaron Burr shoots him dead. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're suggesting, though, that actually we need to look at Hamilton the lawyer. Yes. That he was fundamentally... Uh, that he was essential to the development of American law in the early republic. Mm -hmm. So what attracted you to that topic, and what were we missing? Why why, why is no one looking at Hamilton in that way, in a serious way, Mm -hmm. before you decided to dive in? Okay. Well, what attracted me to the topic? Uh, When I was an undergrad, I did not study history, mm-hmm. and I instead sort of had that mindset of what is the best way for me to have a successful career that is oftentimes measured in money and power suits and working in, uh, in famous law firms mm-hmm. or Wall Street, and that was sort of where my mind was. Um, and so I considered studying the law myself. I sort of ruled it out for me because I thought that I didn't really want to practice. Mm -hmm. Law was fascinating, but the practice didn't sound like it was fit for me. Plus, you go into a lot of debt when you go to law school. Right. Then in the 2000s and now as we approach 2020. Um, So I was very aware of that. Now that was happening. Then separately from high school, Mm -hmm. which was in the late 1990s for me, I discovered that I was really fascinated with Alexander Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So these two things sort of coexisted for me. And once I got to grad school, it dawned on me that in all of the reading I have ever done about Hamilton, it's noted that he's a lawyer. And occasionally, in sort of a biography of Hamilton, you you might get a sprinkling of his famous cases. Mm -hmm. But the focus is always on the political stuff, right. his economic policy and getting that through Congress, and then the fights with Jefferson and the party stuff. And I just thought, well, wait a minute. He's always a practicing attorney yeah. in, until he goes to the Treasury where he stops, but then he resumes later. And I'm like, well, where's that story? And um, it, it just sort of dawned on me that there might be something to tell. Mm-hmm. So I had an advisor at the University at Buffalo where I, I had a, I got a master's degree. His name was Dick Ellis, and he encouraged me. He said, that's a great idea. You should pursue this. 
And then when I arrived at UVA for the PhD program, mm-hmm. Chuck McCurdy, who is oh, a legal yeah. historian, he also thought, I think you might have something here. So I just did more of the reading and it is not the case that no scholar has ever looked at Hamilton as a lawyer. There's an edited collection of his legal papers, for example. Mm -hmm. But that's just an edited collection of documents. It's not trying to make a sort of larger argument. And then you also have tons of law review articles about different cases. But what I saw is that there just wasn't a synthesis of all of this Mm -hmm. together. And I thought... That's my dissertation right there. Boom. So so that's what I did. And I tried to make my book um, about the bigger argument about how Hamilton fit in Mm -hmm. in this formative moment of everything, right? We just started this new republic. We got to read this constitution, but also keep my eye on what was happening in his private practice Mm -hmm. to see if and how that influenced the bigger stuff. Yeah. And, And that's what I tried to do and hopefully... I think successfully accomplished, you know, in 300 pages or whatever. Well, sure. And so he's he's looking at the big American jurisprudential picture, but also how is this actually playing it out in local courts and district courts? And right. And I mean, there is a tendency to focus on the U.S. Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and Hamilton only appeared once before the Supreme oh. Court. He won at the case, Hilton versus U.S., but he only appeared <laughs> once. So, uh, you know, why go back for more? Just it's a winning record. Right. Just, just stop while <laughs> just you're stop ahead. right there. <laughs> So uh, that's not to say that his legal arguments didn't show up in the court, mm-hmm. but sort of right off the bat, I, I was tipped off to think, well, New York is an important state. He's very active in New yeah. York courts. What's going on there? And then also to figure out how Hamilton's arguments might bubble up into federal courts, mm-hmm. even if he wasn't there to be the official advocate for them. And all of that happened. So let's let's talk about Hamilton's legal training. And so what is okay. what does it mean for for someone who wants to be a lawyer in the 18th century? How does one become qualified to represent clients before a court? You do not go to law school the way that we think of law school today. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing so formal. That being said, there are um, places that are sort of formalizing the study of law. Um, in America, but most famously, um, there's a, a collection of them, the Inns of Court in London, England. Now, Hamilton doesn't do any of that because he just he doesn't have the connections or the money. So what he does is what I would say most lawyers in America end up doing, which is read law for themselves. Mm-hmm. That that includes raiding someone's law library and reading their Blackstone and all of the uh, reports they can get their hands on, statute books, yeah. legal treatises, whatever. Then when they feel that they have read enough law, you might observe someone practicing, sit in a court, see what's happening. But when when all of that's said and done and you think you're ready, then you're examined Mm -hmm. before the courts in which you want to practice. Mm -hmm. And when they say that you're acceptable to practice before them, then you've passed their bar and you can practice. And Hamilton does this astonishingly in like one to two years. He's he's passing the new... Yeah, and that's, that's partly because he is a pretty smart guy, but he studies intensely and New York changes the law to allow him to get away with that training for such Mm -hmm. a short amount of time. And, and he, I would say even that when he's never formally practicing law, he's still using law. Mm -hmm. So he's 
always engaged with it. He's so, always using that training and the legal arguments behind it. Exactly, even when he's Treasury mm-hmm. Secretary. So he's he's reading Sir William Blackstone, his commentaries on England. He's probably reading Sir Edward Cook, I would imagine, mm-hmm. um, his own Institutes of the Laws of England from the 17th century. Um, and you statutes, of course, and then you mentioned you mentioned reports. And so, can you unpack what a report is? Because I, you know, I think in, in the modern era, we're accustomed to downloading the Supreme Court's opinion. They yeah. always issue one, so we know what the court decides. But early American lawyers are using these things called reports. And so, what what are these things? And and what's the significance of these things in in common law? Okay. Well, case law, these reports, what I'm referring to. Um, tend to be the written record of a case. And in the 18th century, what was included in that written record could vary. Mm -hmm. Um, America does not systematically begin case reporting until the 1790s turn Mm -hmm. to the 19th century. So it's spotty in the colonies turned states. But England does it. Um, So what you're going to be reading for is what are the facts, what are the the legal questions that the facts pose to the court, and then how the judges decide the case. What kind of law do they apply? What Mm -hmm. kind of precedent do they muster to feed into the opinion and when they make this legal decision? But but even even with all of those parameters I just laid out, it, it could be, reports can look very different. Sometimes you have judges each issuing their own opinion. Sometimes the report has the entire court signing on to one opinion. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get literally four sentences for the entire <laughs> thing, and yeah. that's the case report. And sometimes it's very long. Sometimes you have to rely on newspaper coverage to tell you what happened really? in the case because the case reporting officially didn't happen, mm-hmm. and so your record of the case is, you know, these kind of other public documents. And so you, you may only know the decision of the court by reading it in the paper. Right. It may not actually be in a, comp- a compiled volume. Right. Um, so it just so happens that when Hamilton is practicing law, that he hits the sweet spot of New York getting mm-hmm. down to business with hiring some case reporters who do it full time. And that's how I am able to write a whole chapter about marine insurance, for example. Yes. Yes. And mortgage law, uh-huh. for example, because... All of a sudden, New York is actually investing these resources in in, in making it um, public to all jurists and to lawyers what those legal questions were and how the court decided. Mm-hmm. And that included uh, Hamilton's arguments for the uh, one side or the other, or and then his opposing counsel. Mm-hmm. And so all that all of a sudden becomes systematized and published. Well, why New York? I mean, why why New York, and as opposed to a place like Massachusetts uh, oh, or a place well, like the, Virginia? The, I mean, yeah, why, the case wh- reporting was happening sort of um, in in all places that had important decisions. Mm-hmm. But Hamilton practiced in New York, which is right. why it's important to me that I'll, New York. Oh, got I see. I, I, I was thinking that maybe New York had, had decided, you know, what we're going to really up our game with with systematically publishing reports and then... And then others followed. I'm yeah. not sure who who kicked off that that bandwagon. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not quite sure off the top of my head, but New York was, was part of that first mm-hmm. movement. And they did, you know, when you look back at the case reports, particularly for the appellate courts, they're curated. You don't have every single case that hit the yeah. docket. But even, but even in the process of the court reporters deciding which cases to publish suggest which 
what were the issues and what were the legal questions that were bubbling up that were most important mm-hmm. that they thought needed to be disseminated. And I think that's helpful too. Um, this The next project, the project I'm sort of working on right now, well, definitely working on right now, I should say, <laughs> is is I'm about to forget about it right now. Right, <laughs> <laughs> is a, a a project on New York's highest court, uh-huh. uh, the Court for the Correction of Errors, and this court. It's, I have looked at the court's minute books dating back from the 1780s, and there are hundreds of cases that there's just nothing about them because no one did the case report, right? But all of a sudden in the 1790s, you see volumes coming out of the the court reporters deciding, well, mortgage law seems to be important. Mm -hmm. So our court's decision on mortgage law, we need to make that well known. And same thing for marine insurance. And so it's just very, you can can really see that these decisions are starting to matter Mm -hmm. and that's why they're being reported. And they're sort of following current political but economic developments as well. Yes. Um, so, in Hamilton's a young man, and he, you know, he's reading law. And is he re- does he become a lawyer before or after the war? After. After the war. Mm-hmm. So he's in this. He and the rest of the country are in this state where they are. They have to sort of figure out how do we transform English common law, which which governs the colonies turned states into American law. And so, can you give us a sense of what's what's the state of play in 1783 with American law? What what does it look like um, at that point in time? Well, it's, of course, dependent on each state to make its own determination about how they're going to do that translation of English to American law. But it's definitely a, a English precedents are alive and well. Mm-hmm. And in New York State, the Constitution specifically says that English common law should be in operation up until a, a certain point in time. One. Two. New York State decides very consciously to model its court system on the English court system. Okay. So New York, therefore, has this this real presence of English law. Mm -hmm. And I would say that in practice, um, at least for Hamilton, he engages with English common law in a real way where it's always informing the arguments he's making. Mm -hmm. Partly because there's a flexibility to English common law that I think Hamilton really liked. Yeah. He liked the ability to um, – let, let me pause and, and re- think back to the, the way we uh, read the Necessary and Proper Clause uh-huh. with our Hamiltonian glasses yeah. on, right? It's called the Elastic Clause mm-hmm. sometimes or a broad interpretation of constitutional powers. Hamilton liked that flexibility and that broad grant, if necessary, of powers. Mm -hmm. And I think he saw English common law as providing the same set of flexible opportunities as applied, though, to the Constitution or anything. Mm -hmm. And so he liked that. And so, therefore, he used English concepts like the concept of what kind of rights you have, due process rights you have. He used that readily and um, in in a flexible way to be the best advocate he could. Mm -hmm. So English common law, in that broad sense, alive and well in New York and definitely in Hamiltonian Mm -hmm. jurisprudence. And so how is, how is, what's Hamilton like as a lawyer? What is, what kind of clients is he representing? What, you know, what's, what's his docket book, what his own personal Mm -hmm. docket book look like or his caseload? So he is not like Washington and Jefferson in the sense that he doesn't have a plantation that's 
allowing him to live on, on that revenue, and he has to work for a living. And so he is, he is known as a good lawyer, and he has tons of clients, but he has clients from all over the place. Um, he does not, he doesn't specialize in the way modern lawyers, 21st mm-hmm. century lawyers, have a specialty, and that's the only kind of law they practice. His clients include loyalists. Oh, yeah. Untouchable <laughs> to much of the legal right. uh, community in the 1780s. Especially in New York. Definitely in New York, right? And so he's one of a handful of people who will even take these clients. So he has loyalists. Um, he has sometimes criminal cases. Mm-hmm. Um, not many, but sometimes. I would say, though, that once he leaves the treasury, most of his clients are either the insurers or insureds mm-hmm. in marine insurance disputes. And that becomes his sort of bread and butter. Oh, that's really interesting. And he's even uh, like a on retainer for one of the insurance companies mm-hmm. in the late 1790s. So he, but he, but he works for both kind, mm-hmm. both sides, both parties. It, and it just depends, but he, but he just does hundreds of marine insurance cases. So I want to come back to that um, in a second, but at first I want to get to the big question of what, what is it? What do you mean by Alexander Hamilton developing American law? What's what's the big picture here? How is he marshaling his own experience as a lawyer and the political power he then thus gains as a member of the first administration to shape conceptions of law in the early republic? Okay. Well, first let me say that I examine him practicing law in private practice. But I also uh, see him using law when he is a public official. Yeah. When he's Treasury Secretary. Yeah. Okay, so I, I don't really make a distinction. All of that is legal practice for mm-hmm. Hamilton. So how Hamilton develops law is he happens to be in high enough places, like the precedent-setting Treasury Secretary, mm-hmm. to have an influence on how law is made, how it's interpreted, and therefore developed, in practice. But then he also, in his private practice where he's an advocate for a particular party, he happens to hear uh, or, or participate in rather really important cases in the early republic. Mm-hmm. Cases having to do, I mentioned with loyalists and, um, for example, Rutgers versus Waddington is a famous one. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that oftentimes has a scholarship of judicial review wrapped around that. Is it the one the New York Mayor's Court? Is yeah. 1783? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's 1784. 1784. But, but yeah, but that's exactly the right one. Yeah. And so, you know, you know it because it's one of those that pop up all over mm-hmm. the place. Um, and I try to connect that to a larger narrative about Hamilton uh, being an advocate for rights, which you would see at the end of his lifetime when he does a freedom of press case of People versus Croswell. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, uh, so he happens to be an advocate in high-profile cases. So the sum total of all of this, when I look at all of this influence, oh, and I should also add, he's an author of the Federalist Papers, which... What are those? Okay. I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) 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 All right. Well... Yes, please explain Federalist 1 through whatever, 87 or something like that. Right. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As one of the authors of the Federalist Essays, he... And the fact that courts tend to refer to them as a sort of how to read the Constitution manual, he doesn't have to be an advocate Mm -hmm. to get his ideas across, right? So anyway, the sum total of all of this 
is that Alexander Hamilton and his particular form of jurisprudence just happens to be there in these formative moments, and his ideas Mm -hmm. live past Hamilton being alive to be advocates for them. Yeah. And, And so one of the biggest legal impacts he has is on federalism, the division of power between national governments and the states. And, and I try to use evidence taken from his private practice, where he's practicing in New York state courts, to demonstrate that Hamilton saw state sovereignty as something real because state courts are so much where the action was to make real policy right. over um, overseas commerce, like this marine insurance stuff mm-hmm. I keep returning to, um, or mortgage law, how, how you're going to... Um, uh, disseminate the rights of debtors and creditors in, in New York State and free up land so it could be used in a more efficient way, those kinds of questions. But at the same time, he's making arguments in the Federalist Papers, which tend to be used in federal courts and the Supreme Court, also about what the federal government's powers are versus what the state government's powers are. And if you can believe it, one of Hamilton's <laughs> lasting legal legacies is that advocates for state sovereignty mm-hmm. tend to use Alexander Hamilton as one of their number one go-to legal arguments to say that states have power and the federal government needs to step down. So that's so counterintuitive to the I way we think about Hamilton, right? Because, right. you know, it's always like, oh, he's the closeted monarchist. Right, he really right. wants, to, he, let's just turn this place into a, uh, a monarch in all but name, right? right? And right. consolidate federal power and... and Put it all in the presidency and the, the administration, but you're saying, hold the phone. I'm saying that that impression is. I'm not trying to say that that's wrong because it's not. It's just more nuanced than that. Yeah. And the nuance comes in when you read Hamilton has these two Federalist essays, 32 and 82, and in it he discusses how power can be concurrently held mm-hmm. by the states, and when push comes to shove. He will allow for the federal government to be supreme, but he won't allow that push comes to shove happens very often. He His running argument in those two federal essays is that we should work from the premise, the assumption that states retain all power that they had before the U.S. Constitution, mm-hmm. but for a few cases when it's limited. And so it's that Mr. Hamilton says states retain their previous sovereignty, yeah. that um, advocates for states' rights positions in the early republic, they go to, and they return to again and again and again and again. Federalist 32 and Federalist 82 show up all of the time in these case reports because that's the argument that um, that uh, the state's rights um, or, or, or advocates for state sovereignty, maybe mm-hmm. I should say, um, Or maybe strict, strict construction of the Constitution as well, I would imagine. Is that, is that playing? Those folks are also using those? Uh, right. Yes. Um, like in uh, McCulloch versus Maryland, a mm-hmm. uh, case of the bank, the the Maryland side, it's like, oh, you want to talk about Hamilton's opinions? Well, let's talk about exactly. Federalist 32. And that's, and they drop that all the time. Checkmate. And, and, right. <laughs> and, and, it's, and you think that it's, like you said, it's sort of counterintuitive, but I find that that's, that's the kind of influence Hamilton has. Yeah. And, and that sort of stuff is cited again and again. So... We, we, you know, we've talked about case reports a little bit, but and surely, I mean, I know, you, I, I know you did. You read probably your fair share of case reports as you were 
working yes. on this project. Lots but, of them. <laughs> but not all the case reports are published, as we've talked about. Not right. all legal dockets are published. So where are you finding, you know, and besides Hamilton's own, you know, personal writings or Federalist Papers, like where, where are you seeing all this sort of play out? Well, what kind of, what kind of documentary evidence are we working with here? Okay. Um, statutes, mm-hmm. because they are uh, oftentimes, uh, uh, well, you have to go to the statutory language to even understand what judges may or may not be interpreting. Okay, so case reports, Hamilton's papers, the papers of other lawyers mm-hmm. who are um, uh, involved in disputes. I found James Kent, who is a, a chancellor, chancellor in New York, yeah. to be extremely helpful. Actually, Joseph's story, too, because uh-huh. both of them wrote their own treatises on American law. Mm-hmm. And they wrote them way after Hamilton's death, but they had the... Um, the, the treatises are very helpful because they're a synthesis of what's happening, mm-hmm. but they also, like good judges, they cite their sources, and they're <laughs> like, I went to this case, and I went to that case, and even if the case is no longer uh, reported that I can find... Yeah, no longer survived. You know what the takeaway was, because these guys tell you what it was, mm-hmm. and they and they synthesize it into the bigger picture. So those those kinds of sources are incredibly yeah. helpful. Um so, really, thank you, James Ken, for that. Yeah. <laughs> really. Um, you know, and, and, and uh, typical sources for early Republic uh, history studies, looking at newspaper articles, because newspapers have pages to fill and not always the journalists to do it, so they cannibalize material from everywhere, and they will print materials on what's happening in legislatures and in courts around the nation. And... Um, Commentary from other contemporaries. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure that I have many sites to Jefferson's papers and Washington's papers in here because um, they're talking about these issues too, and that idea might be relevant to the specific legal question mm-hmm. I'm trying to pin down. And, and to sort of think back to the where we began this podcast, then it, it strikes me as, and I'm thinking about your talk this morning, mm-hmm. where it's 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 less a debate between Jefferson and Hamilton as Secretary of State and Treasury Secretary mm-hmm. over the bank, as it is two lawyers hashing it out over constitutional interpretation. And both of these guys are bringing their experience as lawyers to the table to Definitely. try to convince Washington of one position or the other. Definitely, yes. And uh, when you read their opinions, the way they approach the Constitution, it's very clear. The way they the way they think about law, but how the the law is influenced by their preference for mm-hmm. states being the locus of power mm-hmm. versus not the states, the national government, and and it's those preferences inform the way they they muster their legal tools. That's certainly there, but I would say that 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 argument is is a legal one first and mm-hmm. foremost. Mm-hmm. And yeah, two lawyers talking about it, and and Washington is the judge sitting and listening <laughs> to the advocates make their case. Uh, Which, by the way, Hamilton would love that because it, yeah. is, it is one of the arguments I make in here that Hamilton saw executive power and judicial power as sort of so similar that they should meld together almost. Almost and commingled should, in a way. Yes, and work in a sort of synergy kind of way. And so, yeah, Washington is sitting as a judge, mm-hmm. and we should think of him as a magistrate. And that's kind of the language Hamilton would use. That seems like that would be a fun teaching technique as well, you know, to have your students think about, all right, you, um, Sarah Beth, you're going to be 
you're going to be Washington, you're going to be the judge, and here's Hamilton and Jefferson, and they're going to make arguments for you, and you've got to decide yes. uh, what the outcome is. I try to do that. Yeah. I, one of the things that's great about legal history is it makes for great debate topics. Mm-hmm. and um, the very adversarial nature of it. Right. Yeah. And students like that. They like it a lot. Um, and sometimes I'm the judge, but like you said, sometimes you kind of farm yeah. that off to someone who... Put the pressure on is, them. Is a student, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> they have to deal with it. Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. So, so why marine insurance? Because you mentioned, you know, when Washington, or when Washington, when um, when A. Ham leaves the Treasury, <laughs> um, you know, he he goes back to practicing because he's got to make his money. Yeah. And he he's representing insurers, the insured, and and marine insurance in particular. Yes. So I know I must sound like a broken record mentioning it. Well, no, but I think it's really interesting because you're like. Why marine insurance? Uh, right. You know, New York is a commercial place, certainly, and that's probably part of it. But how does he make it that that his sort of specialty almost? Well, it has to do with the fact that during the 1790s, we are neutral, mm-hmm. but everyone else is at war. So we have this benefit of being a neutral carrying trader to, mm-hmm. to take goods around the Atlantic world. And so that's great for us, and that means that our caring trade business skyrockets. Mm-hmm. However, the Atlantic world is at war, so it's a risky business. Right. So this is France and Britain are just duking it out again. And all of their colonies. And, and everybody else, right. yeah. Right. So and we're over here like, we're fine. Yeah, we're, we're fine. Let us, you <laughs> we'll know. S- we'll sell you our stuff. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, and so we take advantage of that, but risks come with being on the sea when you have naval powers duking it out. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the marine insurance sector starts to grow, but also then the litigation about um, whether something is covered mm-hmm. on the back end. And so questions about neutrality arise all the time. For example, in these marine insurance contracts, it becomes standard language to warrant that you will be neutral. That the, oh, the, really? the, the person who is being insured as they go out to sea will be a neutral party. It will act neutral. But the reality of being in the Atlantic world in the middle of this war is that sometimes you, if you really truly act neutral, you'll be like a sitting duck for someone to come <laughs> yeah. and condemn your ship and take your yeah. cargo and hassle you. Yeah. So in the, in the midst of your voyage, carrying your stuff elsewhere... Um, you might have false papers to kind of conceal the cargo you actually have. Mm -hmm. Or you might try to pass yourself off as not an American ship, but some other kind of nationality. Well, if that gets back to the insurer, they will say, oh, well, no recovery on your contract because you did not actually act neutral. So then you have all this litigation about what counts as violating neutrality. Most things count apparently, or according to the New York courts, but some, some things don't. And, but all these questions are new and litigated. And another big, big question that New York and other states are dealing with is what happens if Great Britain seizes your ship, takes it to its uh, vice admiralty court, condemns it as uh, you know, contraband of war or whatever, then you go back to your insurer in New York and say, well, my ship and cargo was condemned. I want to recover. The question is, should we count as evidence against you the fact that a foreign admiralty court said you're guilty of acting in a way that was not neutral? And so the question for American courts is, is is that conclusive evidence? Mm -hmm. And the 
the the sentiment among American jurists is to be like, yeah, we should count it as conclusive. But they really hash it out, and the and the jurisprudence goes back and forth, back and forth, um, with appellate courts and lower courts, whether or not we should should um, have these foreign decrees as conclusive. And each state court looks to each other to see what's going on in the other courts, and then they make their own decisions, yeah. and then they'll they'll change it. So it's just. It's the circumstance of being neutral in this Atlantic world yeah. at war that makes marine insurance the hot legal field. Well, it certainly seems like insurers have the upper hand here as opposed to the insured because, you know, at some point when you're, you've got a British or a French warship show up and say, give us your stuff or we're going to sink you. Right. You know, you've got to make a freaking choice at that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I, I sort of found and this is a this is a sort of a preliminary kind of I don't wanna don't quote me on this. Yeah. In the footnote anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but in New York at least it's <laughs> Yeah, how to cite this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it it seems to me that the 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 Supreme Court of New York would tend to be more for insurers. Uh-huh. But the highest appellate court, the Court of Errors which interestingly is composed of judges and the New York State Senate, so there's a political element to it. Oh, okay. They tend to decide slightly more in favor of insurance, the, the people mm-hmm. who are, are taking out I'm these suffering, insurance. Yeah. Right. So there's an interesting tension in back and forth. Yeah. And in no way is it sort of just one party always gets the benefit of the jurisprudence. <laughs> what a mess. What a mess, for sure. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So you spoke briefly about the project you're working on now. Can you give us any any more of a preview on? I think it's said mortgage law at this point, or well, the the project is on this court for the correction of errors. Uh-huh. And I, I love that title, by the way. Like what? what you've clearly erred, so we're going to correct you, right? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that's actually only half the title. It, its full title is the court for the trial of impeachments and the correction of errors. Oh, okay. But as far as I know. There's there's no impeachments going on in, in in any of the years I've looked at it yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm only looking at the error side for right now. But anyway, the point is <laughs> this 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 court is consciously modeled after the British House of Lords. And as you mentioned earlier, New York State, right? They're all like prosecuting loyalists, mm-hmm. and it's, it's such an anti-federalist hotbed. And yet they're so consciously. English in their jurisprudence and their court setup. So yeah. I thought that was fascinating. One and two, Hamilton is constantly in the court of errors until his death because he's that kind of attorney. And he's yeah. he's an yeah. appellate attorney. He's a prominent attorney. So I thought, well, this this seems like a good place to sort of research next. Now the court lives until 1846, and then it's replaced by the Court of Appeals. So it has a 70 so year of of existence. Mm-hmm. 1777 until 1846, and I plan on exploring all of those years. But as of right now, I have not yet made it out of, like, the 1790s and 1800s. Just reading through those case reports. Well, that and plus, that's where my natural interest right, lies, right. you know, and it dovetails nicely with the Hamilton Project, mm-hmm. and I can still, you know, visit Hamilton and his jurisprudence <laughs> in Come a different context. But yeah. or Yeah, <laughs> going back to my old friend there. So... Um, so that's that's the new project, and uh, I, I work on it. But like all professors, I wish I could work on it more. Sure. But I work. I, I do 
I am working on it. It's yeah. a work in progress. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, this isn't your tenure committee, so we're not going to change. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And tenure committee, if you're listening, I'm working really hard <laughs> really this hard. summer. Okay? Really I, hard. <laughs> yeah. And I can vouch for her teaching skills. I just watched her teach. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. Too. Put a letter in your file. Um, and I guess one final question, since we're we're talking about teaching and, and you know, sort of balancing your research versus um, your responsibilities in the classroom, you know, how do you bring your work into the classroom? Because, you know, it's... As you know, and anybody else who's done this before knows, it's like sometimes when you know your topic so well, right. it's really hard to translate that into the classroom, you know, in ways that engages the students without just sort of overwhelming them, overwhelming them with an avalanche of information. And so, how do you how do you um, structure your your approach to the classroom so that it allows you to integrate your own work mm-hmm. without um, rehashing the entire argument of the book? over the course of uh, four or five days in, in lectures? Well, some of my students have to just read it, so that's <laughs> how I do it sometimes, <laughs> like my grad students. Yeah. But um, uh, Hamilton actually makes it really easy yeah. because he, you know, the the whole point of looking into this topic is I found Hamilton everywhere. Mm-hmm. His fingerprints were all over law in the early republic, and so... It's, it's not hard then in, in my typical curriculum and the things I want to talk about to connect Hamilton to it. Mm-hmm. Does that mean we talk about marine insurance? No. But it does mean that if I'm talking about the development of freedom of speech or press, mm-hmm. Hamilton is part of that story. He's actually a significant part of the story sure. in the 18th century turn to the 19th century. So that's very easy. It's also easy in the sense that my big argument in this book has to do with federalism, mm-hmm. and federalism is always a theme mm-hmm. in my classes. It's, it's just, it's the driving force of American history to me, and easy to highlight in legal history. So um, I have an exercise I do with my legal history class and my early republic class, where we debate McCulloch versus Maryland. And McCulloch Mm. versus Maryland allows you to incorporate Hamilton and Jefferson's arguments about the bank, but it brings in larger questions that have developed by the time we get to 1819 Mm -hmm. about states' rights and the power of the federal government and what to do when there are clashes. Mm -hmm. And so they can read Marshall and Spencer Roan, and they can read other uh, uh, U.S. Supreme Court cases to all bring us to this one moment where Hamilton's part of the story, but he's not the only story. And... And I get to be judge and listen to who makes the better arguments. And it's not always the Hamilton yeah, side. You yeah. know, I think sometimes they think they have an advantage with me, but they do not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sometimes that Jefferson guy wins. Sometimes <laughs> it happens, yeah. historically. But, yeah. um, <laughs> it's counterfactual. We all but, do it, yeah. Right. But it does sometimes in Dr. Brown's classes. Well, Dr. Okay. Brown, this has been an absolute delight. And I know. Thank you for inviting me well, to this, Well, thanks Jim. for coming. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure you'll be back, but uh, we're going we're gonna to do this again sometime. Okay. I would like that. That'll give me reason to work harder on the next book. Right. Get it done so you get can come done. back and talk about it. That's right. I'm working on it already, Tenure Committee, so don't worry. Okay? It's not the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, let's just submit this. Is your... <laughs> uh, okay. Thank, thanks so much. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Okay, sorry, we forgot to talk about one thing. Tell us about your dog. My doggy, Hamilton. So let me just tell the audience that before I went to grad school, I definitely was fascinated by Alexander Hamilton. And when I got a dog, this was way back in 2005, 
of course I was going to name my doggy Hamilton. So <laughs> this is before I was a historian, and, uh-huh. and Hamilton, he, he's my sweet baby. He was He's blind from birth, mm-hmm. and he... I've forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. And, and now he's 15 years old, and he's been with me, Jim, from Atlanta mm-hmm. to Buffalo to Charlottesville mm-hmm. to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and now Bowling Green, Kentucky. He's come with me to all of those different places, and he is still alive and kicking. He is old, and he... Has issues. But he's a trooper. But he's a trooper. And he is, uh, he's still my Hamilton. He's still my baby. Aww. So thanks for asking me well, about him. You're welcome. And um, shout out to Hamilton. Shout out to Hamilton, I think. <laughs> and that's, that's a much better way to end it there, I think. Oh, yeah. well, thank you. You're <laughs> he thinks you too, yeah. in his own way. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> thanks for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and see you next time.